Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Go to swan.com or use the Swan app for safe and easy Bitcoin buys with recurring purchase plans, one-time buys, free custody in your own legally owned trust account, and free automatic withdrawals to self-custody. Now, for those of you who are high net worth investors and you are looking for some more hands-on guidance, Swan Private is a trusted partner on your Bitcoin journey. You have a dedicated Bitcoin expert, exclusive events, and support for retirement, trust, and corporate accounts with original Bitcoin and investment research. There's also a really great blog post by the Swan CEO, Corey Clipston. It's called Bitcoiners, It's Winning Time. I'll leave that in the show notes. And that shows you a little bit about the journey that Swan has gone on over the past three years and what Swan is looking forward to doing in the next few years. So go and sign up at swan.com slash Levera and you'll get $10 of Bitcoin dropped in your account when you start stacking with Swan. You need a block explorer to be able to check things on the chain or check the prevailing fee rate. And mempool.space is my favorite one. Bitcoin is growing beyond a single layer. It has a fully-fledged multi-layer ecosystem. And mempool.space is the comprehensive explorer, and it's a very popular one used across many different wallets and services. You can see the mempool, you can see the blockchain, you can see second-layer networks like the Lightning Network. You can even explore the Lightning Network and see other nodes and see the channels and all kinds of useful information. With mempool.space, it's free and open source. It's There's no need to trust a third party. You can host it yourself if you want to. Now, if you're with an enterprise, mempool.space offers custom features such as a customized instance with your company's branding or increased API limits or increased access to the developers. Go and learn more at mempool.space slash enterprise. Okay, are you ready for something big? BTC Prague is coming in Europe June 8th to 10th in Prague, Czech Republic. I'm looking forward to going. I'm going to be one of the MCs and this is going to be a huge event with something like 10,000 people there. Now, you might have just seen Michael Saylor will be attending in person along with a range of awesome speakers and a hundred companies, whether you are a fresh new coiner, new to Bitcoin, or whether you are a Bitcoin whale, a business insider, a developer, this is going to be a fantastic opportunity to meet up and network, talk and learn about Bitcoin, as well as enjoy a relaxed summer atmosphere. Go to btcprague.com and use the code Levera to get your discounted ticket. I'm looking forward to seeing you there in Prague in June 2023. Now for this episode, Casey Radama joins me to talk about ordinals and inscriptions. Now this has been blowing up a lot on social media recently and a lot of people were asking me to do this episode. Now to be clear, I'm not necessarily endorsing or saying everyone should go out and do ordinals and inscriptions. The point of me doing this episode was to have an explanation episode uh, so that people can learn a bit about what exactly ordinals and inscriptions are, what's the bull case for them, what's the bear case for them, do they spam the chain, does it make it harder to validate, is it good for Bitcoin or is it bad for Bitcoin? You know, people can disagree, uh, but I hope you find the episode educational or informative at least. So here's my chat with Casey. Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a real pleasure. I am a longtime listener of the pod. Uh, it's on my, you know, short list of uh, Bitcoin podcasts. So it's it's really surreal. You've been whispering into my ear, you know, <laughs> as I go to the gym and I do whatever for a long time now. So it's very surreal to actually be talking to you in person or, you know, virtually. Yeah, of course. Well, that's great. Well, thank you. And uh, look, there's been a lot of people asking questions about ordinals, inscriptions, all this stuff. And this is, it's so surreal to me. Like people are using all these weird words that I made up, you know, like uh, it's, it's crazy. Right, right. And so, uh, look, I'll be, I'll be honest. I'm probably more in the sound money camp and, I, and I'm maybe a little I'm, bit... I'm in the sound money camp too. I, I, I would not do this if I didn't think that it was good for 
Bitcoin's sound money use case. Like, I think that the most important thing that Bitcoin can do is be, I got into Bitcoin because I hate the government. And I think that the government does things very badly. And one of the things that does very badly is money. And so I really like the idea that if there's a money that's better that the government doesn't control and people can opt into it and it benefits them individually and as a group to opt into it, that would be great. And I saw Bitcoin as that. And so, yeah, just saying I'm with you. And I think that that part of Bitcoin is the most important thing that Bitcoin can do. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So before we get into it, let's um let's get a bit of a quick background. I know you're involved with San Francisco Bitcoin Devs Group, and tell us a little bit about yourself so people know. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a software engineer. I live in the Bay Area. I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, I used to work for giant evil tech companies um, like Google and Facebook. Regrettably, I also did a stint as a um, developer at Chaincode Labs, where I worked on Bitcoin Core. Um, really a very minor, uh, Bitcoin core contributor. I don't even really call myself a Bitcoin core dev because it was like, fix some tests and like make the code a little prettier. Yep. So, um, was a contributor to Bitcoin core at chain code labs, um, worked on really some, just some random stuff, open source, open source developer. I, I write this program called just, which is like a make replacement, which is a sort of a productivity tool for programmers to save and run commands. Um, I worked on another Bitcoin project called Agora, which was just a way to uh, sell. It was a web server where you could put up files and sell them in exchange for Lightning Network payments. And that, nobody really wanted to use it, didn't really take off. Also, I'm the uh, host of the San Francisco Bitcoin Developers Meetup, which is a BitDev Socratic seminar style meetup. Um, I took over hosting duties from... Uh, Alexander Leishman, the CEO of River, when he was no longer able to do it a little while ago. Uh, so I've been doing that for about six months, seven months. And most recently, I started working on this thing, created this thing called Ordinals that I started working on about a year ago. Yeah. And so I've been kind of like noodling on it for a while. It's had a few different forms, but it kind of finally reached the form that you see it today about six months ago, maybe. And that's when I started sort of working on the implementation, which is called Ord, which is a wallet and a block explorer. And that is what we did that release on, do you know, it was January 21st or something last, last Friday. And that's what everybody has been going nuts about. <laughs> right. Yeah, because I think there's been a range of views. Some people have been saying it's going to make it harder to validate or it's taking up space away from the people who want to transact. And it's having this, it's kind of re-pulling up this, these old debates, even going back to SegWit and saying, okay, was raising the block size for SegWit a mistake and all, all of this stuff. So let's, hopefully you can help explain for us. So just give us like an overview. What is an ordinal? Like what is this thing? Yeah, so ultimately an ordinal is really just a SAT. Ordinals, the ordinal protocol, there's kind of two levels. There's ordinals and inscriptions. And ordinals are a convention that anybody can sort of opt into where instead of SATs all being the same and a UTXO just containing fungible SATs, you number the SATs in the order in which they're mined, starting at zero. So the Genesis block uh, can created sats zero through five billion. And then the second block created sats five billion through 10 billion and so on. And so that initial numbering scheme 
is combined with a protocol or a convention for tracking them when they move across transactions. So a first input, first output, first input, first, first in, first out ordering. So you go, okay, the first sat and the first input goes to the first sat in the first output and so on. So it's just a convention that does not exist on the Bitcoin base layer that people can view the blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain in. And then they can, they can do things like there's like all this wacky stuff, like rare and exotic sats. And they can see like the particular history of a particular sat and other wacky stuff. Like I gave sats names, like the letters, they're, they're just a mapping of the, of the, of the sat number to the letters A through Z. So they all have names. For weird reasons, they start long and get short because if they start short and get long, all the good ones are stuck in the Genesis block. And so it's just this thing that you can convention that you can view the blockchain and that lets you pretend as if individual sats have an identity and individual sats move from, from UTXO to UTXO. So that's sort of the base layer. Yeah. So just one other thing. So if you could explain how it works, like, so obviously when we spend Bitcoin, like you, it's like you're destroy, you're like, you're melting down the gold and you're recasting in, into a new bar, right? Like that's kind of the idea. So how is it that you're tracking across that? Yeah. So it's, you pretend that instead of the input being spent is just a lump of gold, you pretend that is a list of gold atoms in a particular yeah. order. And then you line up all the atoms in the inputs and all of the, all of the sats in the inputs and all these sats in the outputs. And you just pretend as if they go straight across. So if the first sat and the first input has number one, two, three, you say, okay, well then the, the first sat and the first output has number one, two, three, and you sort of go them across. And then any sats that are left over after you've assigned sats from the inputs to the outputs are the fee. And those go out again from the Coinbase reward, from the, so the, from the Coinbase block, yeah. transaction. Yep. In the order in which they appear in the block. So the Coinbase transaction consists of the new sats, you know, the sort of sat range for the new sats. And then all these sat ranges for all the fees that were paid in the block and the order in which they appear in the block. And you can actually go to ordinals.com, which is this block explorer that I wrote, and you can click on a recent output and you'll see this like these like ranges of sats. Right. Yeah, I see. So yeah, interesting. So it's kind of like you're you're putting this view onto the blockchain, and that's how you can kind of assign that those sats are the same. Even though I'm sure if you talk to like a coin join guy, privacy guys, they'll be like, no, I'm breaking the deterministic links, and da da da. I don't know that this sat was paying that, and etc. Anyway, putting that to the side. So I get that. So I think I'm seeing that part. And then so, do you need? Some kind of software, and that's, I presume that's what this Ord wallet and Block Explorer does. It helps you get this view, right? You might be running Bitcoin Core, and then on top of that, you're running Ord. Is that how it works? That's exactly right. Yeah, you run your own uh, Bitcoin Core node, and then you run Ord, and Ord asks Bitcoin Core for all the transactions and all the blocks, and then it's able to build this index. Um, the main part of the index is like for each current UTXO, what are the SAT ranges in that UTXO. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's totally open source. There's no, like, I run ordinals.com, but that's just one instance of the block explorer. Um, you can run it locally and see exactly the same thing. Yep. So yeah, that's right. Gotcha. Okay. And so then let's talk now about the inscriptions part of this. So what's the inscriptions thing? Yes. So then inscriptions are another, you know, convention 
where you can stick content, which is basically just any file that a web server can return, anything that you can view in a browser. And that content is assigned, again, using this con convention, which is arbitrary that I made up, um, assigned to one of the sats in the output of that transaction. And that turns that sat into something which is uh, effectively an NFT. I, I really hate the term NFT for a variety of reasons. A lot of them are weird technical complaints about how I think that NFTs on platforms like Ethereum are just very bad for a variety of reasons that I can get into, mostly technical reasons. I prefer to call them digital artifacts, which is sort of, in my mind, like an, an NFT that has these additional properties of being immutable and secure and uh, not having any backdoors and being fully on chain. But yeah, so an inscription is a transaction that includes content in one of the witnesses, which is part of the transaction, usually used for scripts and signatures and stuff. And then by convention, it's assigned to the first sat of the first output of that transaction. And so then the holder of that sat can put it in a wallet, they can send it to somebody else um, and move it with a normal Bitcoin transaction that does have to be constructed with this like input-output ordering in mind to move things to the right place, and then behaves very much like an NFT. I see. And so then the idea is this is like this kind of collectible that you could spend around, but you're like using on-chain transactions to spend the, let's say you, you create an ordinal, it's called Casey's, you know, digital artifact. Casey's fabulous you, digital artifact. Yeah. yeah. And then you send it to me and then I, you know, I, I pay you for that or whatever. And then I could transfer that around so long as I have a special wallet that can view this. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, 100%. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. So, so basically like you can create these inscriptions as we're calling them. And you can transfer them around, but they're impossible to destroy, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's correct. They're impossible to destroy. Yep, that's right. Yeah. And so then I guess that's kind of what this whole aspect is. So let's talk a little bit then about some of the, the pros and cons here, right? Like as I see, as I understand, you're saying you're seeing it like we should have fun with Bitcoin. This is like a, you know, this is a new thing that people could use to play around. And maybe even though it's kind of quote unquote meaningless, but actually people ascribe value to it. So I guess that's kind of on one side. And then on the other side, you've got the people who are saying, no, it's making it, you know, you're increasing the size of the chain. You're making it harder to transact. It's harder to validate. And, you know, so let's let's try and disentangle some of these components. So let's first hear, you know, your let's hear the bull case. Why is it a good thing? Yeah, I mean, art and culture is um, something that is, I think, as old or older than money. Uh, money is one of the oldest human technologies you know, a lot of people think that there was this like barter phase that we went through and then, you know, we did that for a long time and then money came around, but that's probably not the case. Like barter is so inconvenient, you know, double coincidence of wants that you really want some form of money. So we see early forms of money in like axe heads and like beads and stuff like that. And those early forms of money are, a lot of them are descended from something that's more like a collectible, you know, that this sort of pre-monetization phase and, and some of them come from things that look a lot like art, you know, things like um, carved beads or pretty things. And so, you know, art and culture is an ancient human technology and like selling art and culture objects and collecting them and trading them is an ancient human technology. I personally think that a lot of NFTs are really lame and really stupid. Um, they're just dumb. 
but I do think that some of them are really cool. In particular, I really like the like gen not the not the generative like thousand monkey picture PFP ones, but the algorithmic art ones, the generative algorithmic art. Um, I think those are really cool, and I've made some of that art myself. And so, yeah, I see this as a way that people can have fun with Bitcoin. That art and culture is good. These use cases are good. People like art and culture. Um, contribute to the security budget. Um, i.e., you know, pay more fees to make sure that, um, the security budget is sufficient to keep Bitcoin secure, increase adoption. NFTs are one of the few things in crypto that obviously some NFTs are scams, but I'd say that they're one of the things in crypto that like really has product market fit. Like people love these things. And a lot of people, you see them like they get that they buy the monkey picks on Ethereum. And then they stay in the Ethereum ecosystem. They sort of become like Ethereum bag holders and they are really attached to Ethereum. And, you know, and I think that's really unfortunate. I would like people to get into Bitcoin both for sort of the right reasons. Like, yeah, let's have sound money. Let's, you know, opt into this thing that we can transact freely. But also if they get into the wrong reasons, that's fine with it for me. If they come for the monkey pictures and then become Bitcoin bag holders and then like they, they, they get into the, sort of sound money aspect of it. I think that's a great, great, great outcome. So I guess that's my that's my bull case for uh, ordinals. Gotcha, yeah. And so then I'm sure you've been seeing a lot of the criticism online and everything. So let's talk about that and your responses to some of those things. I'm sure you've got responses. So probably the central idea, if I had to, like I'm just trying to reflect what I see in the community, right? So the central idea I'm seeing is probably this idea that, oh, why should people have to download all these random, you know, art, garbage, non-financial transactions because it's making it harder to validate and run a Bitcoin node, which obviously you and I both know and probably many listeners understand why it's an important thing for the decentralization of the system. So I'm curious if you have any thought on that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's a bunch of I think there's like probably a bunch of different criticisms in there to like pull apart. Like so the like, well, why do I have to download all these monkey pictures? And it's like, well, I don't know. People do like stuff that you don't care about or that you don't particularly like or enjoy. But, you know, whatever, like, uh, they, people are going to like and value different things, you know? And so if some people pay for things that you don't understand, that doesn't mean that, you know, they should be stopped getting into the like increases the block size. So actually, you know, Bitcoin security model requires that blocks be full. If blocks are not full, then um, people who are paying fees, who are essentially bidding to get into blocks, they have no reason to bid as, as long as mi miners are decentralized. If miners are not colluding and there's a bunch of, you know, sort of relatively decentralized miners, people who are transacting do not have to pay above the minimum fee rate to get into a block if blocks are not full. So Bitcoin security model relies on blocks being full as we transition to a post-subsidy world where the where the new coins in every block are getting lower and lower and fees must uh must rise to begin to subsidize the bitcoin security budget so because inscriptions do not bypass the existing block size limit um with like a a tiny little asterisk they don't block well let me put the asterisk in another place um because the block size limit has not changed and because um blocks must be full for bitcoin to be secure it doesn't change the expected future size of the chain. It's true that increased activity now 
while blocks are sometimes full and sometimes empty, will lead to you know a, a, a marginal increase in the size of the chain. But if you sort of zoom out a little bit, like the the expected size of the chain is, you know, the blocks are going to be full and the chain is going to grow at the rate of, you know, a full block every 10 minutes, um, sort of in the, you know, medium to longer term. And I, I personally think that it's probably a good idea if we were to get fee revenue up uh, sooner rather than later. I would sort of not like it if the sub subsidy was dropping and we were kind of scrambling to hope that fee revenue would would pick up. I kind of see nothing wrong with the belt and suspenders approach where, you know, fees are maybe picking up before we need them. And also, it's important that fees not just be high, that blocks be full, but that they not be full and then empty and full and then empty. Because then you create these weird scenarios where miners are, instead of trying to extend the longest chain, they're like trying to dig out the fees of the previous block. The fee sniping. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you kind of want this big backlog of stuff that people want to get into blocks. And so I hope both that, you know, raise the fee rate and also provide this like kind of low importance backlog of like junk that people would kind of like to get into a block. Like, yeah, okay, I'll inscribe this JPEG, you know, at one sat per V-byte and it can just sit in the mempool. Um, and maybe it doesn't get in right away, but it forces other people to bid up a little bit and keeps that fee revenue a little bit more consistent. Yeah, interesting. So I think you're seeing it like, it's almost like you're just assuming we should just have the full blocks from now, right? Because that would be a better, whereas maybe some of the people critiquing are saying, well, there's this opportunity now where maybe people who have lower power computers, maybe less bandwidth, from their perspective, it's easier right now because the blocks aren't full yet. I guess the other criticism or maybe the other line of attack, maybe some people have, I'm thinking here of my friend Pierre Richard or um, Joe Burnett, who've tried to, like their line of argument is a bit different because they're saying, no, it's not about security budget. It's actually more about finality. And, you know, that I guess that maybe there's a little bit where we kind of all agree that everyone is, well, if we're, if we're all right about this thing, there's going to be literally thousands. I think they calculated maybe 80,000 times the demand for transacting on chain. So in that world, it's not, it's not really going to matter. Like we're just going to have so many people who want to transact, but who can't. And that's going to be, you know, because that's, we sort of, in the you know in the online discussion world quote unquote crypto um, or bitcoin circles as well people talk about this idea of you know are the fees too high or now the fees are too low and 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 people just kind of seesaw back and forth about that dynamic whereas i think if anything the likely problem or the likely issue will be that so many more people want to transact than actually do so that's kind of how i'm seeing it i'm curious do you agree, disagree, or how, how are you seeing that? Yeah, I think that's that's probably pretty likely that that in the end, demand will be way, way higher than what Bitcoin can reasonably support. Um, and so, um, yeah, and I kind of expect that inscriptions will always be a marginal use of Bitcoin block space. It'd be, it'd be very weird if there was, you know, 8,000 times the demand for block space and somehow people who just wanted to inscribe monkey pictures were the um like a large part of that demand you know what i mean you would expect a lot of those to be very high value financial transactions and they would certainly outbid lower lower value lower value transactions like just creating these like inscriptions and also um inscriptions are you know from a bitcoin protocol point of view very inefficient they include um the content in the witness, which is an intentional design choice, which I can go into. But that also means that 
in order to outbid an inscription to get into a block, normal Bitcoin transactions, because they're so efficient, they, they must pay a, uh, not a very high absolute fee to wind up paying a higher fee rate than that very large inscription transaction. Um, so I kind of feel like financial transactions are kind of like unaffected by this, you know, additional source of demand, most likely, you know, in, in large part. Yeah, of course, people will want to make some inscriptions that they're willing to p- pay a high transaction fee for. But I'd be very surprised if, if like there was all this demand for Bitcoin and then, uh, somehow inscriptions were making up a large proportion of transactions that were getting into blocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to think through this idea. So th- this is the other point. Maybe it would be great if you could explain this also. So this concept of having the content in the witness as opposed to, let's say, linking to the thing in the chain. So yep. like, I guess, historically or in, uh, in shitcoin land, they, do, they yep. might do a thing where they link to something like an equivalent of like having like doing an op return and having a link to the actual art yep. in that. Uh, yep. But in this yep. case, it's actually in the witness. So could you explain that difference and why? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So um, there's sort of, I'll just pick on Ethereum just because that's technology that I'm familiar with and I sort of know what they do. So Ethereum NFTs do a variety of things. Ethereum NFTs are either, they do, there are some that have the content in the, stored in the contract. There are some that have just a hash of the content. And the hash is sort of like a fixed size, small digest that if you get the piece of content, you can be sure that it was the content that this this digest refers to. But then the content is stored on a separate network like IPFS. Or they're, they're stored on something like Arweave, um, which is like getting deep into shitcoin territory here. Um, this like, you know, quote unquote, like decentralized storage layer, like big air quotes. And then like the worst, those are like all bad except for on-chain. And then the worst is like, it's just a URL to a web server. And essentially, like it's so complicated here. Um, So one is the web server is like terrible, right? If it's just a URL to a web server, it can go away at any time. It can be mutated at any time. You have a centralized gatekeeper who must make that content available or else it goes away. So that's like terrible. Um, Arweave doesn't work. Arweave has unsustainable economics that, um, you know, it's essentially like, you can think of Arweave like a stablecoin that instead of being pegged to the, an algorithmic, algorithmic stablecoin that instead of being pegged to the cost of a dollar is pegged to the cost to store data. And when the value of that coin drops below the cost to store that data, the Arweave like miners or whatever it's called will just abandon the chain and data will be lost. So that's, that's bad. That's no good. IPFS. IPFS is very much like BitTorrent. It's basically like a worse version of BitTorrent, which with a lot of bad decisions that they made while they were making it. Not to pick on it, it just has some technical issues. So when you buy a Ethereum NFT that has the data stored on IPFS, if, if the people who are storing it, you know, that's just on somebody's computer, like Cedars, when you're downloading a BitTorrent torrent. If those people go away, um, your content goes away and it's no longer reachable. And there are some very subtle issues here. So I, I, I just to sort of like, um, try it out. I went to Rare Toshi, which is like a liquid based NFT marketplace. And I went and I bought an NFT, right? And I paid for it with lightning. It was like $5. And the NFT was stored on, is stored on IPFS, but they didn't tell me or make it easy for me to actually download that content myself and start replicating it myself. So in fact, when I bought the, 
the NFT that was that had the hash that pointed to IPFS, I became the one who had the economic incentive to keep the data available on IPFS so that I could sell that NFT in the future, right? But users don't do that. Users aren't told that they need to do that. They aren't told, they, they think that IPFS is just like permanent. IPFS, even though you have a hash, it can't mutate, but it's, you know, it's just somebody else's computer. And so it can, it can go away at any time. So there's very subtle, like kind of UX and like consumer protection issues. Another issue is that on Ethereum with all these different ways of content being stored, when you buy an NFT, you have no idea where it is. You really actually have to dig into the metadata. And even then it's, unless you audit the smart, co- the smart contract, you don't know if it's secure. You literally have to like audit your JPEGs, which is insane. And so I wanted to create something that was simple, that was secure, that was immutable and didn't have these very tricky issues of kind of user education around like, what are you getting? Where is it stored? What do you have to do to, um, to keep it available. There's some possibility that in the future, I'll figure out a way to solve these UX issues. I kind of think they're really hard and allow links to off-chain content with a hash. But it's a whole thing. Like if you let a user download, I think I, I personally think that it's kind of irresponsible to let a user buy an NFT without letting them automatically, like not like they have to type in some command that nobody's ever going to do unless they can automatically start replicating it and kind of take responsibility for making sure they, they continue to have that data and that data stays available. So a lot of tricky UX issues with, with off-chain content that like I kind of just didn't want to want to get into yet. I see. And also collectors really like on-chain content, uh, sorry, issues with off-chain content. Collectors have a sort of demonstrable preference for on-chain content. The, sort of highest value uh, NFTs on Ethereum are all on-chain or are moving on-chain, and collectors seem to really like that. Back to the show in a moment. As many of you know, I'm a big fan of multi-signature, and Unchained Capital can make it easy for you to achieve multi-signature security. So especially if you are a beginner or intermediate user, Unchained Capital can walk you through this process. They have a concierge onboarding program where you can just pay upfront. They will ship you some hardware if you need it, They can do a call with you. They can walk you through this process and you can withdraw from an exchange or from a custodian or a single signature wallet or hardware device into your own multi-signature vault. And so this can give you so much more peace of mind knowing that you are removing single points of failure in your Bitcoin security setup. So for those of you interested, go to unchained.com, click on the concierge button and use code Levera for a discount there. Are you a Bitcoin builder? Blockstream is hosting and inspiring a community-led effort. It's called Build on L2. This is a community for Bitcoin builders. So this will include an interactive community platform where builders, whether you are a product manager, a designer, or an engineer, you can all come together through events. There will be a mentorship program to fast-track success, as well as have a community space to learn something new alongside other Bitcoiners building the future of Bitcoin layer two. So go and sign up. You can get early access. The platform is available over at buildonl2.com. And finally, when it comes to Bitcoin security, my favorite is CoinKite.com. CoinKite make a range of products, most notably the cold card, but they also have other products such as the tap signer or the block clock or the, the block clock mini and the block clock micro. So there's a range of Bitcoin gear that you can use, whether that is to secure your Bitcoin or whether it's other devices and other accessories that you use alongside your Bitcoin security devices. And don't forget, for those of you who are backing up your 
Bitcoin security, you've also got to think about having a steel backup and CoinKite offer the seed plate product, which I use also. So go to coinkite.com, use code Levera, and you'll get a discount on your cold cards there. And now back to the show. Yeah, maybe it's seen as more immutable, kind of piggybacking off the immutability of Bitcoin itself. But that is also the criticism as well, because some people are saying, no, people shouldn't be storing arbitrary data on chain. And I, I guess that's where maybe the, the criticism is. And I understand this is not just a new thing, right? There, there were, you know, historically, and I'm sure you're quite familiar, there was this uh, earlier, re- earlier saga in uh, Op Return. And I know there's a really good BitMEX research post about this. So yep, Op basically, Wars. yeah. So do you want to give us, I guess, your, your perspective on the Op Return Wars? And are you kind of reintroducing Op Return Wars? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, the main thing about Op Return was that so, oper- so before OpReturn became sort of a standard way of storing things, and also not a way that was ever encouraged by the Bitcoin developers, by the Bitcoin core developers, you would people would write these protocols where they actually stored them in transaction output scripts, because that's sort of like a convenient place to stick stuff in a transaction. Now, the problem with that is that if they kind of make it look like a big weird multi-sig or some other kind of script type, Bitcoin core nodes have to keep that data in the UTXO set forever. And the UTXO set is sort of, it's a scarce resource. It's a costly resource. Every time you get a, your node gets a new block, it needs to look up every single input in that block's um, transactions to make sure that it's in the UTXO set to make that, make sure that all those transactions are valid before it can relay it to the rest of the network. So it's kind of a data structure that has to stay in RAM. And because we need it to stay in RAM, it needs to be um, very fast. So the problem with this pre-op return way of doing things is that um, it would not just add arbitrary data, but it would do it in a way which was uh, very inefficient and very harmful for the network. So to prevent people from doing this thing that was like bad, they may- did this sort of compromise where they encouraged people to use an output script that started with op return, which immediately renders the output uh, unspendable. And so it's in the script, it's an op return, and then it's whatever data they want. And that lets Bitcoin core nodes see that it's an op return and drop it from the UTXO set. They go, nobody can ever spend this because it can't be spent. And so we don't need to put it into the UTXO set to begin with. OpReturn had limitations. OpReturn, by standardness rules, I think an OpReturn is uh, limited to a maximum of 80 bytes of data. Yeah, and so um, that was OpReturn Wars. Much consternation, as people said, you know, 80 bytes isn't enough. And the core devs were like, oh, we're not encouraging this anyways. So yeah, in a way, I guess it sort of like reignited the controversy. I think it's okay to want to use Bitcoin as like an anchor layer to store arbitrary data as long as it doesn't, you know, affect the incentives of the system, um, you know, you're paying your fees. It's not like it's really not an attack vector. Um, and this is kind of nothing new that I've done. It happens to be more efficient the way that I'm doing it. But um, it's sort of always been possible trivially to stick data in, in Bitcoin transactions. But yeah, definitely reigniting the controversy. And then, you know, one issue with the way that developers were doing it pre-op return was it was very inefficient. It was burdensome to the network. And Inscription content is stored in um, the witness. There are a few nice properties of the witness. So one is that it's input data, um, not output data. And so that means it never 
enters the UTXO set to begin with. There's no question of it entering the UTXO set. Another is that Bitcoin core nodes um, have something called the SUM valid, which is on by default, and which means that by default they will not look, they will they will download, but they will not verify witnesses that are buried deep enough in the chain. So because inscriptions are first when full nodes validate them when they're above the assumed valid height, they're very cheap. They just sort of look you can get to this op false, op if, a bunch of junk that the core node just skips, and then an op end if. So they're they're cheap to validate. Um, and actually, like kind of subtle point here is that block size and download time is not the only part of that of initial block download. There's also signature verification. And so this may, you know, marginally increase the the, the amount of data that needs to be downloaded, but it's very cheap data to validate. It just, they just sort of skip it. And then furthermore, if it's below the assumed valid height, they don't even need to skip it because they're not looking at those witnesses at all. They're just, you know, hashing them and they're like, okay, whatever. And then also potentially in the future, and this is like not something that is on the table at the moment, uh, we might want to do something called witness pruning, where below a certain height, we don't even uh, download witnesses at all. They just uh, are, are sort of their historical... They're, they're buried so deep in the chain with so much work on top of it. Other security assumptions would have to be violated for them to be wrong, i.e. An, an attacker would have to be able to create enormous chains of like bad bad blocks. Um, and so they might not even be downloaded at all. So no, no changes to Bitcoin Core were required to you know, make this use of, of witness data efficient and not burden the network. It's, it's sort of a very, very, the most low impact bytes in the blockchain are in uh, inscription content, which are just they're in the witness and they're just skipped. Interesting. Okay, so just to summarize, so when we when we when we let's say we set up our Bitcoin node, it's downloading like the headers and the blocks, yep. and the default setting, as you said, is assume valid is on. Meaning, I think I, I don't I can't I can't remember the exact amount, but it might be like six months or twelve months back. Basically, where I, I believe I, I'm not sure. Don't well, I guess I'm being quoted right now, but like the the I believe that they add a new block hash to new releases of Bitcoin Core where they just uh, like say, okay, if below this block hash is like, just skip it. Um, I, I don't know if it's automatic. I think it might be. Um, yeah, I think it's like on a rolling each release they're saying at this point. So maybe yep. if you, yeah. So basically up to a certain, then your Bitcoin node is only checking the signatures from that point forward. So it might be from like six months ago up to right. now, right? Yep. In, pra- in, like, in practice, if you have assume valid, you know, which is the default setting. Now you can, if you want to, as a user, if you want to be the full, if you want to be the mountain man, as Vitalik says, and you want to start from zero and validate every signature, you are yep. fully able to do that. But I think the question is more about the increased download and um, the compute aspect. So I think, as you said, um, the download part could be potentially even doubling what it is today if it were to be filled up, right? It'd be pretty odd if we started getting four. Like, so the doubling that you're referring to is if you had blocks that were essentially nothing but inscriptions right. uh, that were all witness data. And so they were at the four megabyte block limit. I think that's would be pretty weird. Like if, if that would mean no, bit, every... Every person making inscriptions is willing to pay to get into blocks more than every financial user of Bitcoin. That's a, that would be a very weird outcome. I think it might be something, you know, like 10%, 20% at, in my wildest fantasies. Right, right. Okay. So, yeah. So, basically, we're looking... So, 
The likely scenario then is that it will increase the download, but not necessarily the compute. And I guess you could even make an argument that it may reduce the compute verification requirement, but the increased download and the increased, uh, yeah, and hard drive as well. Um, Because even though it's not in the output set, it's not in the UTXO set, it is part of the chain. And so it's just like, it's a bigger download. So it means people have to have a bigger hard drive on the margin. um, Mm -hmm. And maybe that matters 10 years from now or 20 years from now. But of course, we're hoping that uh, hard drive improvements, computer improvements, internet improvements all come as well. So I guess the other interesting question people are having, and I think you were touching on this as well, is does Taproot uniquely enable this? And as you were saying, it was always possible, but did Taproot make it easier to stuff even more data? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it did. Um, So if we sort of go through time, there were old school pay to script hash transactions. Um, And I don't remember the exact details, but those had a lot of very weird requirements. You could use them to store some data, but it was pretty tortured and there there were like weird standardness limits. So the policy limits that determine what Bitcoin Core will will relay and and maybe also consensus limits, although I'm not entirely sure. So could do it with pay to script hash, lots of weird limits, what didn't get the witness discount. And then um, SegWit came along and um, introduced the witness. And when it introduced the witness, it gave the witness a 75% discount relative to other transaction uh, bytes. And this is for two reasons. Well, three reasons, really. So one is it was seen as desirable at the time to increase the block size. And, you know, SegWit was a block size increase. So the way to increase the block size, because SegWit, the, the witness data was invisible to unupgraded nodes, was to give that data a discount. So that, okay, like you can still only have one megabyte per block, the old block limit of non-witness data, but then you could have this more than one megabyte of discounted witness data, and the total needs to add up to 4 million weight units, which is the weird, you know, unit that block size is now reckoned in. So it was, we wanted a block size increase. And also, um, witness data is often used to essentially prove that you witness data is used to prove that you own UTXOs and when you spend them. And so that, you know, is is when you, when you prove that you use UTXOs and spend them, the, you know, that removes those um, UTXOs from the UTXO set and, uh, you know, reduces the resource burden of maintaining the UTXO set. So the thought was, okay, we want to encourage people to clean up their old UTXOs. So that's another reason why the witness is given a discount. And then the third reason is sort of all the um, reasons of low impact that I mentioned. The witness data is simply um, cheaper relative to non-witness data. And so as a result, it makes sense to discount it uh, for its like lower impact on the, um, on the network. Does that all make sense? Yeah, I think I'm following you. So I think one other critique, or maybe you can help me understand this. Are inscriptions paying a lower fee per real byte than other things? Are, are inscriptions paying a lower fee per real byte? Uh, yes, yes, because inscriptions have a relatively higher proportion of, of witness data. And so because the witness data is uh, discounted, discounted, yeah, yeah, they're paying the same fee rate, which is sats per V byte. But in terms of sats per real byte, yeah, they're, 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 they're paying less. Right. And so I guess maybe that's, I think that's probably the, the heart of the criticism from some of the OGs and people out there in the community who are seeing this like, oh, there's, there's going to be all these people 
just spamming the chat like and I, and I know this is like a people get the term spam is uh quite hotly debated loaded. as well because yeah. people say oh if you're paying fees it's not spam and then mm-hmm. other people saying no but like look at you know think about the the intent or the content or you know but i i think we have to also consider that if like let's say from your perspective or from my perspective or just from an, an everyday user if there's a lot of people who are let's say doing coin join or consolidate doing really cheap consolidations or things like this you know they could be or expensive consolidations for all i know or if binance drops a bomb in the you know and they just do a whole bunch of transactions on on the chain mm-hmm. all of those things are things i have to contend with in order to get my transaction confirmed into the chain regardless mm-hmm. of whether it's coin join or consolidation or just a lot of whales want to transact and they're all paying high fee well yep. we all have to contend with that so i so maybe there's a little bit there but i think probably the heart of the criticism is about the lower fee per real byte but you know at the same i think what you said is is really fair like that criticism of you know like other people using bitcoin means that we have to pay more um and i i i sort of on like one level i think like yeah like you pay the fee you you pay the fee it's not spam on the other level, I wouldn't use that argument to really justify anything. You know, sometimes people do things voluntarily that are harmful and lead to bad outcomes. And if this was um, harmful, I wouldn't use, you know, you pay the fee, you get into the block as an argument for why it was actually okay. Yeah, a lot. Right. Of- it would be like saying, oh, I paid for the bullets in this gun, so therefore I'm allowed to shoot it. Well, no, that's not how, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of things that people do with Bitcoin is, is, pro- is already very frivolous. Like a lot of Bitcoin's transaction volume, like let's face it, it's shitcoinery, right? It's like moving money between exchanges because Bitcoin is like, well, I mean, I guess, I guess a lot of it has moved to, um, like stable coins like Tether and USDC or whatever. But a lot of it is like, you know, random exchange activity. People do use Bitcoin for things that are frivolous. Yeah, I mean, my response would be like, yeah, other people using this shared resource means that the use of the shared the shared resource gets more expensive. But people do value being able to make inscriptions, being able to trade inscriptions. It's it's like I really the community is really fun so far. Like people are just having fun and being dumb, and like they really enjoy it. People really like this like just degen nonsense. It's also kind of like harm reduction. Like, listen, they're not on Ethereum getting scammed by ICOs. They're, they're making like rock pictures. And, and that's one, one reason that I sort of have this soft spot for, for NFTs. There are scammy NFT projects, but a lot of, for a lot of NFT projects, it's kind of like, yeah, people know what they're buying and they enjoy the degenning into the monkey pictures. Um, so yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's just another use of Bitcoin that we have to contend with. The discount thing is a little bit weird because like, it's like, well, yeah, that's why they were, if SegWit, if, if witness bytes were not given a discount, we wouldn't have a, there, it's not like there are, there would be less block space total. There's, there probably is some impact there, but it's a kind of a complicated thing. And yeah, the, 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 the witness bytes were given a discount for all these reasons. And yeah, it's, it's, I think the other, hmm. actually on the witness bytes thing, I think the other interesting point was, I can't remember the exact argument, but I think it was something like, because having to store the UTXO set was seen as like, you know, that's the important thing that you've got to store. So maybe if there's an incentive to spend those UTXOs, there's more of a, like you're going to destroy those UTXOs. Yep. Therefore, 
reducing your impact on other node runners in the network. Mm-hmm. So I think that was also a key part of the justification there, right? For sure, yeah. And it's the, it is the case that when you create inscriptions, you are not destroying UTXOs with your um, data in the witness. And to, to that, I guess I would say, yeah, that's that's one of the three reasons that it was given a discount. You know, clean up UTXOs, but also um, lower impact on the system in general and desire to have a to have a block size increase yeah okay gotcha so there's been some people who are saying oh how, how do we stop this da, 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 etc but at the same time i think looking at other people in the community it, it sounds like they're saying there's not realistically a way to even stop this so it's kind of like a look it's valid it's paid for i don't necessarily have to like it it's just, but it's it's there and you have to just accept that it exists and i, I guess that's um maybe that's where, where that's where i'm sort of landing yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at um, Bitcoin devs, somebody posted a message. They were like, oh, my God, these inscriptions, how do we stop it? And Andrew Polstra responded. Um, Andrew Polstra is super smart. He's somebody whose opinion that I respect a lot. And he kind of went through the game theory and he's like, yeah, like, you know, if we if we if we make it hard for them, they'll just use some other weird thing. And like these limits were removed for a reason. It would make transaction construction harder. And like very, you know, quickly, he's a very, very, very smart guy. He's like, yeah. The only winning move is like not to play, like just working through the game theory. Uh, so yeah, I think, uh, for people who don't like, uh, inscriptions, uh, I mean, kind of stuck with them, <laughs> ignore them or, you know, buy some, buy some rock JPEGs, you know, up to, up to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think at the end of the day, and as I think you've commented also, and other people have been commenting, really what would change all of this is the, the fee market or the block space market. And of people using Bitcoin, right? Because if everyone's using Bitcoin, well, then it's going to get very, very expensive to do this kind of inscription stuff, right? Because I guess right now, you can pretty much get things through at low fee per byte. But let's say a lot of people are transacting regularly and the fees were to start rising Mm -hmm. on average, then inscription fees would also rise quite a lot in order to put things into the chain, right? Yep. And and inscriptions are not small. Even with the witness data, you know, there are like 400 kilobyte inscriptions, like the largest transaction since 2006, uh, no, 2016, uh, I was told, I don't know if this is totally accurate, said wasn't, was an inscription that was like 350 kilobytes or something. Um, and so that means that, you know, that inscription on the one hand, it's displacing many, many, many smaller Bitcoin transactions. On the other hand, it has to pay fees to displace all of those smaller Bitcoin transactions. And so even if it gets the witness discount, it's not cheap. I've seen people paying fees of like $120, I think was the highest to get an inscription into a block. And so that means all these smaller transactions would have had to pay the same fee rate, but would have to pay in absolute terms much, much, much less to get in ahead of that inscription. Yeah, so... It remains to be seen what happens, like if this thing becomes popular or does it remain this kind of niche little use that a few people are just kind of playing around with. Um, if it does become really popular, then maybe there's also a concern around accessibility, right? Like if all these, I guess that's kind of where people make this argument about Bitcoin for the for poorer people, right? That all these rich people that, you know, can play around with their inscriptions and it's taking away the accessibility for people who can't afford to transact on chain as often. But at the same time, that maybe also is a driver for, for the use of, say, Lightning. I don't know. It's uh, We'll have to see. That's right. Yeah. And ordinals and inscriptions are actually very hard to lift onto an L2. Um, it's, it's, it's just not easy. It's very much an L1 protocol. So it does encourage the use of the lightning network. 
And I think that Bitcoin as a, as a shared resource, which has these um, constraints on block size, it's, it's an unfortunate reality of Bitcoin that it, it is going to get very expensive to transact on the base layer, whether that demand comes from inscriptions or for something else from something else from, from sort of, you know, legitimate use of the Bitcoin network. A- another thing that I would also say is that I feel like a lot of the time people are sort of, they're in this like soldier mindset for Bitcoin and they kind of view they every new thing that they see they feel like they have to kind of categorize it as like a friend of Bitcoin, like it's in the friend category or the enemy category. And as Bitcoin gets more adopted and more people use it, there's just going to be things that like, eh, you don't really get or you don't really care about or are kind of frivolous or like weird to you. And it's just kind of natural as use expands and getting like really mad about inscriptions it's kind of like going up to a bunch of kids who are playing with Pokemon cards and being like, Pokemon cards are stupid and you're stupid for liking them. Um, and like, maybe you have valid criticisms, but you know, maybe they just like, they just like Pokemon. They like trading cards, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's probably the spot to finish up. I think, um, I'm kind of in that, like for me, it's not interesting to me at all. I, I would rather, you know, keep it accessible, but I also understand I can't stop this thing. So, you know, because that's, I think that's the other angle because I think, because when people don't like it, then they sort of try to censor it, but then they realize there's not, as you pointed out, as Andrew Polster pointed out, there's not really a, a good way to stop this. Um, so for better or worse, it's here and it exists. So we're, we're going to have to deal guys. with it now. <laughs> yeah. So I guess um, any, any closing thoughts from your side, uh, even if we you know, disagree about the value of this thing? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, closing, like one closing thought is, you know, we're still on the same team. Uh, I, I appreciate all of the civil criticism that I've gotten. I think that it's reasonable. And I think that, you know, the community having this defense mechanism and being interested in how new things work and, and being critical and disagreeing them is, is totally reasonable. Um, yeah, I think inscriptions are destined to be a minor, fun, weird niche use case of Bitcoin. Oh yeah, my 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 podcast host co-host will get really upset if I do not show my podcast. She like every time I forget and then she gets mad. So yeah, if you want to hear a podcast which is much much worse than Stefan Levera's podcast, <laughs> like just sort of the Bitcoin comedy hour, uh yeah, Hell Money Pod, uh the Hell Money podcast, check it out. But yeah, no, this is this is great. I really enjoyed really enjoyed talking to you and hopefully at a at a conference or something we can uh meet in person and uh, have a beer. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, it'd be great to uh, catch up in person. uh, And, uh, yeah, thank you for joining me and helping explain ordinals and inscriptions for me and for my listeners. Thank you. My pleasure, man. It's been an honor. As usual, the show notes and the transcript will be available over at stefanlevera.com slash 456. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.